Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Stephen Bovey, professor at Texas A&M University's Mays Business School, and Scott Graffin, professor at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. We'll be discussing their article, Corporate Directors' Implicit Theories of the Roles and Duties of Boards, which was co-authored with Michael Withers of Texas A&M University and Kevin Corley of Arizona State University. It was recently published in the Strategic Management Journal, and I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Scott, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and Steve, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. One of the most studied questions in corporate governance is, what is the proper role or what is the role of a board of directors of a corporation? Could you introduce the listeners to some of the incumbent theories? We'll talk about how boards perceive their roles in just a moment, but what is the current playing field or how should we be thinking about the various theories in terms of what a board's role is? This is Steve. I'll start and most of our thinking, at least really academics and also corporate governance practitioners and legislators, has been driven by the rise of agency theory. And academic agency theory really got started, and there's probably three famous papers from the very late 70s and early 80s that talked about this idea of the separation of ownership and control in modern corporations and how that creates the potential for the misalignment of motivations and interests between managers and shareholders. And then in the later articles by Fama and Jensen, they argue then that the role of the board of directors is to exercise oversight and control over managers to fix this agency problem. And that idea, that's the role of the board, is extremely dominant throughout, in my view, all circles. So Legal oversight as the role of the board is written into most corporate governance law in the state of Delaware, which is where most large corporations are incorporated. Both the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ have requirements about independent directors, which is premised on the idea that independence equals oversight. And in my view, this idea is really just fully diffused through all practitioners, academics, legal practitioners, regulators, corporate governance experts, etc. Their view of the board is that the board's job is to exercise independent oversight over managers. Yeah, Scott here. Just to chime in and add what Steve said, at the core of this idea is that these independent directors are going to exercise something called decision control. And the idea here is that Because CEOs don't own the firms they're running, there's the potential for them to engage in activities that are self-serving or benefit them more than the corporation. Those are typically known as agency costs. And the idea here is that boards, because of their independence, will exercise decision control. So if a CEO does propose what's called an unsavory initiative, uh, they're going to vote it down. And because the CEO knows that these independent directors are monitoring his or her decisions. They may even be less likely to bring up these initiatives knowing they're going to be voted down. And the reason that monitoring is at the core of 
our theoretical arguments within academia or even legislation like Sarbanes-Oxley that mandates a substantial majority of directors be independent for this very reason. And the reason that they do this is because, uh, as Don Hambrick, one of the leading scholars in management and governance says, CEOs can turn to a lot of different people for strategic advice. However, there is only one entity that can monitor the CEO, and that is the board of directors. And that's why typically academics think of monitoring as the primary and most important activity that board members undertake. Are there reasons to think that some of these theories might not give a full account of the role of a board of directors, what a board of directors is doing? And if these theories fail to provide a full account, what would be the value of the theories in thinking about how corporate governance works and how boards fit into that? This is Steve. I'll start. First of all, I would say that most people, when you look at the ideas behind agency theory broadly, believe agency theory to have real explanatory power. Specifically, the idea that like the separation of ownership and control that happens in the modern corporation might create situations where like executives have different interests than shareholders would have. So I believe that to be true, that there are definitely situations when a decision a manager might make is not necessarily the best decision that would benefit shareholders. I I believe that's real. However, there's the idea that the way agency theory is applied to boards of directors and our assumptions about what directors do, I think the assumptions there are a lot more questionable. So there has been a lot of academic research trying to link things like board independence or other measures of good corporate governance with better firm outcomes. And in my view, the empirical evidence linking these things is very weak. There's been a number of meta-analyses that have found very weak links between board independence and firm performance. In fact, I wrote a review paper a couple of years ago where we tried to look at every empirical article on boards that we could find in top journals across accounting, finance, and management. And the conclusion that we made there was that even if directors wanted to monitor, that their ability to do so was severely limited. We called the idea implausible. And there are just too many barriers that would impede active, regular monitoring by directors, even if directors also believed that monitoring was their primary job. I think these academic theories have a lot of value, but we have to understand how accurate they are and where their limitations arise. And that is some of what prompted this study. So just to delve into one of the assumptions of agency theory, so let's just think about this idea, right? That boards should monitor to stop unsavory initiatives, or if a CEO is floating a plan that's suboptimal for the firm, they should vote it down. So let's think about what it would take for a director to be in a position. So if you think about a CEO, right, the reason they were hired as CEO is the board thought they were the most qualified person to do it. They have access to all the internal information. Uh, They live and breathe this organization's strategy. They work with the people, they develop plans, and then they bring this plan to a director. And if you think about an independent director, that means one, they don't work for the focal firm. So they're not involved in daily operations. And two, they have no business relationships with the firm. So what you're expecting from a director is to be able to walk into a boardroom, assess a plan that's presented by a CEO, probably with a lot of data, and the CEO is the only internal member from the organization on the board, and a board member needs to understand the plan, 
needs to understand all the other various choices the CEO could have pursued but didn't, and then they're able to recommend what the CEO should have done. And when you start to unpack the theory into an actual context or strategic decision, you start to think, is it plausible to think that a director who flies into the corporate headquarters four times a year can actually make those sorts of assessments to undertake the activities that agency theory assumes they're going to do? And this is Steve again. Let me just add one thing. For me, part of the reason I study corporate governance is because when I first read these academic papers, I was really surprised that people believed that this was the solution. So I said, oh, you're telling me that the solution to an agency problem, right? The agency problem of the executive controls the firm's resources is to create what, in my view, looks like another agency problem. Is you get a second group of agents, a set of independent directors, and they watch over the first set of agents. And that just seemed a highly implausible fix for this issue of possible managerial problems. And I thought, wow, I, is, if people really believe this, I want to study it because it seemed amazing. What research question did you and your co-author set out to answer in this paper? And could you introduce some of the methods that you used to tackle it? We had two primary research questions that we wanted to answer. And they were, how do directors view the roles and duties of the board? And the second question was, how do those views affect how they act? So we wanted to start from the premise of understanding what directors actually believe their job is. We knew what the academic literature said, we knew what theory said, but we wanted to understand what directors actually believed. The method to try and answer those research questions were, we were gonna to talk to directors and ask them about their beliefs and to see how they interpret their beliefs into the types of activities that they undertake and what they feel their job is, how they approach their job and all of those things. And to be honest, we were a little bit skeptical that directors felt exactly the same way that, that these explicit academic theories said they should feel. Both Scott and I and our co-authors have been academics for a while. In other projects, I have spoken to directors and talked to them about their jobs. And most of the time, I have gotten the impression that directors are interested and highly motivated, but I did not think that they viewed CEOs and their role the same way that we think they do. And so that was really the primary impetus for doing a qualitative study and qualitative methodologies where you interview people and you try to understand the meaning that comes out of these interviews are appropriate for research questions like this that are broad. We weren't seeking to test a specific hypothesis with a very specific measure. Instead, we were trying to develop broader understanding of directors' own implicit views and theories about their roles. This is Scott. So what we did is we didn't come in with any assumptions. We just started with very broad questions and then funneled down. How do you spend your time? How can you tell when your board is effective? Can you tell me about a time you thought your board was particularly effective? And from these broader questions, we would just see where they led us in terms of their activities. So we didn't ask, we didn't, it's not like we, we gave them a chart and said, how much time do you spend monitoring? We just said, how do you spend your time? What's important? What's effectiveness for you? What do you look for in boards? When you've accepted a board seat, why? When you turn them down, why? And just try to get this broad sketch of how they view directorships. And that's all we wanted to do was to see what was actually happening out there because you know, this hadn't been undertaken for quite a while. It used to be the case, I think, through the 70s, 80s. These sorts of qualitative studies occurred with some frequency, but then our field went dark 
on trying to talk to directors. I think maybe people thought that directors wouldn't speak with them. I think they thought maybe the legal environment would bar directors from being honest with us. But it was surprisingly easy to reach out and get to a sufficient sample size in, in terms of just being able to interview these folks. I'd like to talk about some of your findings in a moment, but I'd also like to hear a little bit about your experience with this method. Did you uh, run into any barriers as you wanted to interview these directors? I imagine directors are probably pretty busy and they might be reluctant to do interviews. How did you go about getting the opportunity to speak with these folks? Were they enthusiastic? Was it harder to get them to chat with you? Or are they excited to talk about what they do? And I asked this partly in terms of introducing a method that other scholars listening to the podcast might want to consider using as well, whether they're looking at issues of corporate governance or other issues related to business or corporate issues. This is Steve again. I will say it wasn't easy to get access to directors, but it also wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. What we did was we started our centers for executive development, both at Texas A&M and also at the University of Georgia. And both of our schools have relationships with some large firms that we do executive training programs with. And we used those centers to be our primary introduction to some of these directors. We also did things like I went to our advisory board meeting and met some of the people that sit on the AM advisory board or the Mays advisory board and got access that way. So we did need uh, some introductions to get us started with these interviews. And then after we would conduct an interview, we would ask each director if they would be willing to give us some contact information or introduce us to any of their other colleagues. And then finally, we actually even just did some cold calling where we were able to get access to an email list of some directors and we would email directors cold and ask them if they would be willing to talk with us. And our goal was to talk with basically enough directors where in qualitative research, the phrasing we use is theoretical saturation, where as we would do an interview, hopefully we would start to learn less new information. And so the interviews, that's basically, we tried to do enough interviews that the next interview seemed to keep echoing the same themes as the prior ones. And that's really what we got to. I felt like we got there around our 40 or 45th interview. And then we just tried to go through all the contacts we had. But at at that point, I felt pretty confident that we had spoken with enough directors that we were getting very consistent stories. And anyway, but I, I think it's possible to talk to directors. It does take legwork and it took about a year for us to, to conduct all these interviews, but I think it's possible. So you spoke with dozens of directors. You reached that point of theoretical saturation. What did you find? We have a lot of interesting findings. One of the things about this paper is I felt like we learned so much and there's only so much that could go into a paper, but I think our main and most important finding is that Directors do not believe their main job is to monitor executives. When you ask directors what they feel like their job is, the answer that they give relatively uniformly is that they are there to support executives by working with them as strategic partners. When we first heard this answer, in fact, often I would follow up with questions specifically about monitoring and directors would say that they didn't believe that was their jobs. And in fact, directors would also often admit that they didn't think they could monitor executives effectively, even if they wanted to. 
but they don't want to. They believe that if they don't trust the CEO, rather than monitoring the CEO, they should fire the CEO and hire someone that they can trust and work with. And so they believe the way to enhance shareholder value is not to vote yes or no on executive proposals. Instead, it's to be a partner with the executive and try and make those proposals the best they can be. Some of the other findings in the paper are that essentially directors describe their jobs as being a service role. Most directors say that they are giving back to the corporate community by serving on boards. And consequently, because they feel like they're doing service, they're not willing to tolerate conflict or tension in the boardroom. And so the way that they approach their job, I think these are very related because they want to work in an environment where they feel that there is trust and mutual respect. That also affects the way they interact with the CEO and also with each other in the boardroom. They want these experiences to be positive, to be working together, to not be filled with conflict, tension, arguments, etc. This is Scott. Just to follow up on what Steve said in terms of monitoring, it's not that they don't monitor at all. It's the fact that they don't vote down decisions because as a number of directors told us, if our job is to evaluate the quality of the CEO, how can we tell if he or she is good if we're constantly voting down what they want to do? The only way for us to see or to actually have evidence of a CEO's quality is to let him or her implement their plan. And we need to be there. They say they have a fiduciary responsibility to run the company in the interest of shareholders, but they have to let the CEO implement their plan. Otherwise, there's no way in which that they can actually assess the quality of the CEO's plan and in turn, the quality of the CEO. How do these findings complicate some of the existing theories of the role of a board of directors that we talked about at the top of the show? And how should they perhaps update some of our understanding of directors? I think we need to go back to the drawing board a little bit when we are trying to look and develop empirical models for how we expect the board to have an influence on large strategic corporate outcomes. The problem with our existing theories and most of the existing tests of these theories is that we assume that various empirical and archival structural indicators, things like director independence, mean that a board filled with more independent directors will provide more monitoring. But what our paper shows is that is not true. If we assume that variables and measures mean things that they don't actually mean, we're going to have a really hard time developing good empirical models that link the board with things like firm performance or creating models of board effectiveness. In my view, I think we need to have a more realistic conception of what directors are actually trying to do. And our models of board effectiveness need to be premised and built around, if the role of the board is really to help executives, then our models of board effectiveness need to look at, so then how do we build boards that are most effective at the task they're actually trying to accomplish? I think one of the tendencies we have quite a bit in academic circles, but also in the press, is that when something goes wrong at a firm, we blame the board for being asleep at the wheel or not monitoring executives. But If they don't want to monitor and they don't think they could effectively, then blaming the boards for these monitoring failures, I think, does us no good and it doesn't create patterns that really help academics or practitioners understand 
what's really going to drive board effectiveness going forward. Scott here. And I think just changing the conversation around board effectiveness, you're just not going to have that monitoring aspect occur. So just again, like Steve said, being realistic. I think the other thing that came out from our studies was maybe Steve could speak to this as well. But when we talked about theoretical saturation, we reached that very quickly, which in terms of practically what that means is there was very little variance in terms of what we heard from directors, whether they were, we talked to some directors who were on their first board and only six months in. We talked to other directors who had been on multiple Fortune 100 companies and had over a century of experience and their accounts of what boards do, what's important, how you should interact with the CEO, they were stunningly consistent, which in one respect suggests that boards function similarly. On the other hand, it suggests a very dense network and very strong cultural norms that are taking hold on boards. So I, I think that's something else to, that researchers could look at. So what happens when you have newer, different directors? Because it seems when we talk to directors, their conceptions were so similar, even across age, across ethnic background, across experience on boards, they were all living in very similar worlds. I don't know if you want to speak to that at all, Steve. I fully agree with Scott. And in fact, when we would ask directors if they could tell us about bad experiences, in fact, often the bad experiences or the bad directors they would discuss sound like what corporate governance experts think a good director is. So they would describe directors who didn't understand that they should not speak up all the time or raise weird questions or that they would bring up questions that they had not pre-vetted with the CEO or that they wouldn't understand when they should stop talking. And those were the directors that they would say they would want to counsel out and ask the directors not to go up for re-election because they made board meetings so uncomfortable. So for me, I definitely think one of the things that's happening here is, as Scott was saying, there's strong norms for socialization when new directors join boards they quickly learn what is the right way to act. And if you don't act in those ways, boards don't want you to be there. It becomes uncomfortable. And directors do not want to be on boards that are uncomfortable. And so if we want to have better understanding of how to change what boards do, we not only need to understand what boards think they're supposed to do, but we probably need better models of how boards are socialized and trained and all of these things I think we have to toe a clear line here because while CEOs and board members actually, we heard multiple stories about a CEO having to train a director to not act like they run the company, right? CEOs that we said, board members need to make sure the firm is well managed, not to manage it well. They have to kind of stay in their lane in terms of supporting the CEO. But at the same time, these are not just corporate stooges. There is a norm of preparedness that I think we haven't really talked about a lot, that directors are engaged. They want to help. They provide strategic advice. They prepare for board meetings. Very often, they're in contact with the CEO multiple times between board meetings to understand the plan. So by the time they get to the board meeting, they can provide effective guidance and they want the firm to do well. They're invested in the firm doing well and they genuinely care about the firm doing well. It's just that they don't accomplish that through monitoring. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the article? And are there any follow-up or, or future research questions that you hope to tackle? I think the point Scott just made is a really important point. One of the things that has always struck me about 
boards. And that one of the reasons I've been interested in, in boards is that when I first started thinking about these ideas of, because in the academic literature and often in practitioner views, there's this feeling that boards are just filled with yes men and that the boards are just rubber stamps. And yet my experience with talking with directors was like, as Scott mentioned, even before this study was that the directors seemed to really care. These are all very smart individuals. And so it felt like a little bit of a paradox, this idea that how could we have boards filled with highly experienced, highly educated, very well trained, many of them former top executives, and why are they perceived as a group that just does whatever executives want? And I think this study helps to provide some insight into that supposed paradox. And as Scott said, directors are not just rubber stamping whatever the executives say. They want firms to do really well. They care a lot and they understand that they have a responsibility to improve shareholder value. What's important is that we have a better understanding that they don't feel like the way to improve shareholder value is by monitoring the decisions the CEO makes. Instead, they believe that it is more likely for them to improve shareholder value by helping the executive produce the best version of their ideas, plans, and strategies. That's why they believe that they should work with the executives to improve the strategy of the firm, rather than assuming that the executive is self-interested and watching over the executive and possibly vetoing their decisions. They do not believe that is the right way to improve shareholder value. And I think if we want to study and understand boards, then we need to start from that premise. That is what directors understand and believe to be true. And going forward, our research model should have a more accurate perception. From my perspective, as someone who is primarily doing empirical archival corporate governance research, I also think it means if you're going to stick the same old variables in your model, you can't just assume that they mean the same things anymore. You can't just say, oh, board independence, the, the ratio of independent directors, that's a proxy for monitoring. It isn't. And if you think it is, you're wrong. One key takeaway for me is that given how ensconced this culture is, expecting something different from boards in the short term is unreasonable. This is what they do. This is what they are. So as researchers or as practitioners or as regulators, you know, if we want something different from boards, we're going to need different kinds of boards. I'm not even sure what that looks like. Steve's probably thought more about this than I have. But, you know, a few years ago, California passed a mandate for having a minority representation on boards. And at the time, I wasn't sure what to think of it. But after talking to all these directors, whether it's term limits or mandated turnover, if we want to change how boards work, I think we have to change who are on boards. Because even when we talked about how one becomes a director, we talked to a number of people who had just gotten on boards, especially more often than not female directors. And they talked about their struggle to get on boards. Because I think in a lot of instances for executives, it's a marker of success when you become named to corporate boards. And I think there's a lot of executives who want to do this and are willing to do this. But the way in which people become directors, despite all the reforms, despite the mandates from Sarbanes-Oxley, it is very heavily mediated by sitting CEOs. Given how important culture is, how the interactions occur, how the feeling people have from that service orientation, boards are very hesitant to name directors to boards that they don't know already. So having those social connections seems to be a really important way in which people get on boards. But then once people get on a board, 
and they behave in the way in which they should. A number of people who had just had their first time directorships, they get offered multiple directorships almost instantly once they're accepted into this culture. So I'm not quite sure where I'm going with all this, but I think given how stodgy the culture is, we have two choices. We can either try to study and understand the current way in which boards work, or we'll have to think of a way to change how boards work. Our guests today have been Stephen Bovey, professor at Texas A&M University's Mays Business School, and Scott Graffin, professor at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. We've discussed their article, Corporate Directors' Implicit Theories of the Roles and Duties of Boards, which they co-authored with Michael Withers of Texas A&M and Kevin Corley of Arizona State. This article was recently published in the Strategic Management Journal, and I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Scott, Steve, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.